Welcome to the Families Under Pressure podcast series, brought to you by the Life Course Centre. Over this series, you'll hear from a range of experts, all with a shared passion for delivering the evidence-informed policies and practices that can best support our most vulnerable children and families. The demands and shocks of modern life mean families are under pressure like never before, but they've also never been more important. Families are a critical pathway for steering happy, healthy, safe and productive life course outcomes for children and the generations to follow. Families Under Pressure explores the opportunities and the challenges, social, economic and structural, for families to provide the best possible foundations for children to realise their life's full potential. Hello and welcome to the Families Under Pressure podcast series presented by the Life Course Centre. This series investigates the many pressures facing families today and the practical steps we can take to better support vulnerable children and families over their life course journey. I'm Professor Matt Sanders from the University of Queensland and a Chief Investigator in the Life Course Centre. Today we're examining the important topic of child protection and what we can do to ensure that every child in every community is safe and protected and has the best possible start in life. To discuss this, I'm joined by Professor Daryl Higgins. Daryl is the Director of the Institute of Child Protection Studies at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. Daryl has been researching issues affecting families for over 25 years, and his research focuses on a public health approach to best protecting our children. It's great to have you with us here today, and welcome, Daryl. Thanks very much, Matt. It's a real pleasure to have your opportunity to be part of this uh, podcast series and talk with you and all of your your guests. Daryl, you and I have known each other for quite a while now and collaborated over a, a fair period of time. But for the benefit of our audience, why don't you start by giving them a bit more detail on your background and also the work, the important work that's being done in the Institute of Child Protection Studies? Yeah, thanks, Matt. So I, I trained as a psychologist and worked as a, an academic at Deakin University for a number of years. And then I moved to the Australian Institute of Family Studies, which is a small government research unit that focuses on conducting research and evaluations, but also in terms of translation to policymakers and practitioners, the kind of key findings and implications of research. And that's really where I got my training in this kind of translational work, which I think is really, really important. And then for the past four and a half years, I've been at ACU, where the Institute of Child Protection Studies is focused on not only conducting research and program evaluations, but also that idea of translating implications of research through training and community education, advocacy, and also policy development in order to try and enhance outcomes for the well-being of children, young people, and their families. So really, this is a role that's seriously into creating social impact from research. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think research that sits in journal articles in, you know, what they call the ivory tower. Goes nowhere. Yeah, it, that's right. That's right. Okay. Well, it's very timely that you've joined us on our podcast today, Daryl, as recently National Child Protection Week took place in Australia. And the theme was every child in every community needs a fair go. 
This theme also included the statement, to treat all Australia's children fairly, we need to make sure every family and community has what kids need to thrive and to be healthy. I was wondering if you would care to expand on this a little for us, please. Yeah, thanks, Matt. The National Child Protection Week theme this year, and in fact, the Child Protection Week as a construct is really something that I'm very passionate about because the idea is trying to get the community mobilised around this concept of us all having some um, responsibility in order to move things forward. And I think the theme for this year around every child in every community needing a fair go recognises that we often have inequities, if you like, in the conditions that families exist within and particularly inequities in the kind of access to services and supports. So in order to be able to be better supported to raise their children and to give them the opportunities that I think all parents really want, there's a lot that we can be thinking about, particularly from a service system perspective, and I, and I hope that many of the people listening to this podcast are coming from those service systems like education and health and um, many of the community organisations that run sports and arts and culture and recreation activities where children are engaging and where families are engaging and think about what they might be able to do to ensure that all kids are thriving and healthy. Yeah, and I suppose this really reflects a public health whole of population or all of community kind of approach where everyone has something to contribute to the well-being and protection of children. But when we start to think about the delivery of a population-based approach, I mean, what, what do you think this needs to look like in practice? I began my kind of research career focusing on the issue of child abuse and neglect and focusing on the statutory child protection system for responding mm -hmm. to, you know, very serious harm and to intervening in order to keep children safe. And I've shifted my focus a lot into what you rightly describe as a public health approach because what that recognises is that so often the families that are struggling and that may be at risk of harming their children are not actually getting the services and supports that they might need in order to be able to prevent that harm from happening. We also know that there's a lot of families that are providing what we might call suboptimal environments where, you know, children are not getting the kind of right supports and are being parented in a way that is less than ideal. And so a kind of a public health approach to addressing safety and well-being of children means focusing on those conditions that parents are creating in the home. I also focus a lot on the issue of children in organisations and creating conditions within youth serving organisations that allow children to flourish and to develop well and most importantly to keep them safe. What does that look like in practice it really is a big shift in terms of having the idea of safety and well-being at the forefront 
of any organisation that has direct contact with children and their families. Yeah, that's right. I mean, to have a have an intervention system that is exclusively focusing on the pointy end of the highest level of risk and vulnerability, at one level, it's important to have services at that end, but it's never going to shift the needle at a population level in terms of the rates of child maltreatment and inadequate parenting that children may have received. I'm curious when we start to think about access to proven evidence-based parenting support. I think one of the things that the whole field of parenting has taught us is that it is not a one-size-fits-all and that we need to be able to think about the blending of some universal components and some more targeted offers for families with particular uh, difficulties. Does that make sense to you? Do, you? do you agree with that perspective? Absolutely. And I think one of the really strong arguments for that is that it means it kind of normalises the idea of seeking help and getting support. So it's not only those troubled families that have really multiple and complex and often very entrenched difficulties that are targeted for kind of services and supports. And so often that is the case. And unfortunately, even at the moment, we have governments planning to continue that approach of narrowing those supports only to those most disadvantaged and very highly vulnerable families. And my argument is not that they don't need supports. Of course they do. My problem with such an approach is that often those families are reluctant to receive the supports. And it's only at the point that harm has already occurred and they've already come in contact with the child protection system and that there's a level of coercion or force, if you like, into those families taking up those generous offers of support. (laughs) And their motivation, therefore, is based on avoidance of getting people off their back rather than because they have an appetite to participate in something that they've clearly identified as uh, potentially benefiting their children and themselves. And I just I just wonder in a kind of an environment where parents in terms of their rite of passage of transition to parenthood and beyond successive phases of development, it's almost like parenting support needs to become just ordinary, non-exceptional. It's just part of the journey so that there's not this kind of sense that these are programs for failed parents or parents who've got into strife. What do you think about that? Look, all parents need help at some point or other. I've been a parent, I'm now a grandparent, and I tell you I've needed support and I continue to need support. And reaching out and asking other people for ideas, being observant about what is going on with other people who are perhaps engaging in parenting in a slightly different way for you, that is all normal. Even going and getting you know more formalised help through a structured program or uh, an intervention that's delivered by a trained expert, but that does it in a way that's non-stigmatising is really, really important. Interestingly, when there's been research that actually asks parents who have come in contact with the child protection system about their views of that system, one of the most common themes is that it's seen as stigmatising. It's not wanted, it's not something that is welcomed, and that parents don't, you know, open their arms and say, oh, thank goodness child protection's here to help me, you know, get my act together. And the failure to recognise that sometimes means that we have a very, very stronger level of investment at that pointy end and nowhere near the level of investment that's needed in prevention to make parenting support more normal. I mean, if you think about 
about other major roles and responsibilities we have as adults in the community, like, for example, learning to drive a motor vehicle. No one questions the fact that you might need to learn to drive the car and be licensed to do so safely. But we never apply that kind of thinking to the role of transitioning to becoming a parent, which, of course, can cause much more damage to children than damage caused by cars. Part of the challenge is that what we need to uh, create, in my view, is an openness to learning in parents throughout every successive stage of a child's development. So there's not a kind of a parenting program that'll be like a vaccine or an inoculation that's going to stand that parent in good stead for the entirety of their parenting career, because that's a very, very long career, isn't it? Absolutely. But I think what's interesting is even if you go back to the analogy that you suggested of driving a car, I think one of the key elements there is that it's an opportunity to open up the conversation. For example, for a parent to talk with a child around, hey, this is how I approach this scenario. You know, when I'm entering a roundabout, I always think of this. And so they are articulating what might otherwise be a silent process going on inside their head. So they're creating that space to share information, to ask the young person what they've observed and to reflect. And yet we don't often create that same opportunity in our friendship groups or even with our own parents about what parenting is and how you actually think about what is going to be in the best interests of the small person in your care. I wonder if we could just change uh, focus for a moment and, and just consider you know, what some of your insights are into the best ways to support the more vulnerable children living in quite complex and sometimes very disadvantaged circumstances because, you know, clearly children in that kind of situation have additional challenges, don't they, for their development? Yeah, but I think it's worth emphasising the point that we both made earlier, Matt, and that is don't start with just focusing efforts on those who are most vulnerable if you actually haven't put in place a broad approach to supports that you can then crank up the intensity and give more attention, if you like, to those who might need a greater intensity of support and responses. And you add complexity to the minimally sufficient degree that's required to solve the problem. And so the question is not how much support do you need? It's more how little support might you require to enable you to get on with what you want to do? That's right. It's a different lens, isn't it? It's sort of like the just enough support versus, you know, let's create a whole kind of range of supports, some of which may not be required and many of which will not be sustainable. And especially for the most vulnerable, where there's lots of kind of structural issues that might be getting in the way of them doing a great job of parenting. People often talk about issues around employment, finances, poverty more generally, housing instability, multiple care responsibilities intergenerationally, you know, dealing with disability, mental health issues in the family. All of these challenges can kind of come together that makes the task of parenting more complex and more challenging than it might otherwise be. And so being able to kind of have that broad scope of views around what 
might be impacting on the capability of a particular family to provide safe and supportive environments for their children is likely to be different, you know, for each family, depending on what the circumstances are. A single parent who's raising a child on her or his own is going to be different to a separated couple who might be sharing the care across two households or two same-sex parents. I also wonder, though, that we've just got to be careful not to make too many assumptions here either that just because you're a single parent and you're doing it tough and that you have financial difficulties is no guarantee that you're going to be performing poorly as a parent. Parents can shine in many, many different circumstances and it sometimes worries me a little bit where it's almost like the more and more risk factors you seem to be able to identify within a family, the assumption is that this is going to make it harder and harder and harder for you to be successful in your parenting role when still the majority of parents in that situation don't produce children who are traumatised or have major mental health or behavioural and emotional problems. It's still only the minority, but they're at increased risk. That's right. And unfortunately, the way we approach the topic of risk is looking at statistical probability, but that does not mean that it's destiny. It just means that on average, this group of people faces more challenges or it's more likely that they might be experiencing this, but it doesn't mean that every single person in that category is going to be experiencing that same level of difficulty or have the same level of need. So I think what you're pointing to, Matt, is a really important one, and that is families obviously have to be able to learn to demonstrate resilience when they face adversities, but people who are wanting to provide supports, be it a structured program or a more generalised kind of, you know, coaching and support system for parents need to be able to demonstrate flexibility and responsivity to the level of need that individual children and their families have and that it won't be determined in any way by circumstances. Are there any particular unique challenges you think that children who've become involved in the child protection system and have come into care face in terms of their life course journey and, you know, particularly thinking about the kind of family situations they might be in, but when they themselves are growing up and transitioning into relationships and eventually having kids, are there any particular uh, things that you would point to that would indicate a vulnerability in this group? Well, from the, the research, we know that one of the issues is forming attachments. So that kind of bond that you have between a carer and a child. Firstly, that's been severed often in many circumstances between the birth parents, the biological parents and the child if they've been removed. So one of the things that many of the child protection systems are starting to focus on now is the issue of maintaining relationships. So developing systems to support contact between parents, birth parents and children who are removed from their care so that that attachment can still be allowed to form and be maintained throughout their life. We also know that the kind of circumstances that many children who are removed from the care of their parents into the child protection system often face a system that is fairly rigid and not necessarily responsive to their individual needs. And because they've 
typically been exposed to abuse or neglect, and neglect is one of the most common reasons for children to be removed in Australia across all of the states and territories. That's the most frequent one. We know that one of the things that typically happens is the kind of behavioural responses that children have when they've experienced trauma, including neglect and different forms of abuse, is that those behavioural difficulties make it difficult for them to settle into a family-type home. And so foster care or kinship care can be really difficult for them to feel comfortable in. And so often the placements end up breaking down. And so many, many children in the child protection system end up with placement instability. That's kind of a fancy way of saying that they end up being moved from one care situation to another to another. And often the end of the road after many, many breakdowns, is residential care. So living in a group home environment, being cared for by paid workers as opposed to foster carers or kinship carers. Both you and I are involved in a new organisation called the Parenting and Family Research Alliance, which was called PAFRA, which was set up to put the spotlight on the importance of building a a strong evidence base to relating to parenting and family supports. Are there any sort of comments or observations that you'd like to share around some of the priority areas that PAFRA has been spotlighting that you think the Australian population would benefit from? Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the things that we've been trying to focus on is how are the systems in place in order to be able to embed the supports that we need for parenting supports to be widely available, as we said. And of course, one of those is the need for money to be able to do really well constructed research in order to understand the circumstances for the delivery models and the actual content of those parenting supports, be it a structured program or be it more a system of coaching and supports for parents, particularly those ones where it's embedded at that whole of population level. So it could be in, you know, GP clinics or in schools or early childhood centres. And, you know, one of the tasks that we've been undertaking is to conduct a review of funding for these kind of, you know, parenting-related research projects. And what's been found out? What's, what's, the, yeah. what's the take out there? Well, my colleague Sophie Havinghurst, who's led this for us, really has shown that it's quite shocking that there's very little research focused on the issue of parenting. And I'm particularly concerned about the finding that one of the smallest areas of parenting that gets funded is the issue of prevention of child maltreatment. So who is it that, you know, creates the environment that's either safe or unsafe in a home environment, so excluding the issue of abuse within organisational settings, It's parents. And so are we focusing our research efforts on what works to enhance their capability to keep children safe and well? Clearly, if you look at the past 10 years worth of funding, the answer is no, it's not been a priority. I think another important gap there is just the lack of a national parenting and family wellbeing survey because we're just not tracking properly the parenting experience. And it's really hard if we're taking a population approach and if we don't have a good metric that we can refer to repeatedly to see whether things are improving, staying the same or getting worse, it's very hard to tell whether investments by government are making any difference. 
That's right. And we certainly don't know whether it's uniform right across the country from a geographic sense or from a different population subgroup point of view. Are the skills and capabilities that parents have the same or are there some areas where we actually need to invest support? Because we know that Australia is a very large country geographically and access to services is often a real challenge. And so how is that playing out in terms of the kind of capabilities that parents have. So I absolutely agree that we have a big gap in terms of our research knowledge by not yet having a national survey that tells us how parents currently are going. And in fact, whether if we invest more in services and supports, can we improve parenting capability over the long term. I'm absolutely convinced we can do so. Well, Daryl, thanks so much for your time and some of the fabulous insights that you've been able to share with us. It's been, I think, a really valuable discussion on this uh, very important topic. What can be more important than the safety, protection and well-being of our children? I'm Professor Matt Sanders and keep listening to more episodes of the Life Course Centre's Families Under Pressure podcast series coming soon. You've been listening to Families Under Pressure, a podcast series from the Life Course Centre. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with your family, friends and colleagues and subscribe to Families Under Pressure wherever you get your podcasts. We look forward to sharing more episodes and insights from our experts within and associated with the Life Course Centre. For more information on the research and activities of the centre, visit lifecoursecentre.org.au.